The Hellbound Heart by Clive Barker. Chapter 6, read by Nicole Rosengert. It turned cold in the third week of September. An arctic chill brought on a rapacious wind that stripped the trees of leaves in a handful of days. The cold necessitated a change of costume and a change of plan. Instead of walking, Julia took the car drove down to the city center in the early afternoon and found a bar in which the lunchtime trade was brisk but not clamorous. The customers came and went, young Turks from firms of lawyers and accountants debating their ambitions, parties of wine imbibers whose only claim to sobriety was their suits, and, more interestingly, a smattering of individuals who sat alone at their tables and simply drank. She garnered a good crop of admiring glances, but they were mostly from the young Turks. It wasn't until she'd been in the place for an hour and the wage slaves were returning to their treadmills that she caught sight of somebody watching her reflection in the bar mirror. For the next 10 minutes, his eyes were glued to her. She went on drinking, trying to conceal any sign of agitation. And then, without warning, he stood up and crossed to her table. Drinking alone, he said. She wanted to run. Her heart was pounding so furiously, she was certain he must hear it. But no, he asked her if she wanted another drink. She said she did. Clearly pleased not to have been rebuffed, he went to the bar, ordered doubles, and returned to her side. He was ruddy-featured and one size larger than his dark blue suit. Only his eyes betrayed any sign of nervousness, resting on her for moments only, then darting away like startled fish. There would be no serious conversation. That she had already decided. She didn't want to know much about him. His name, if necessary. His profession and marital status, if he insisted. Beyond that, let him be just a body. As it was, there was no danger of a confessional. She'd met more talkative paving stones. He smiled occasionally, a short, nervous smile that showed teeth too even to be real, and offered more drinks. She said no, wanting the chase to be over with as soon as possible, and instead asked if he had time for a coffee. He said he had. The house is only a few minutes from here, she replied, and they went to her car. She kept wondering as she drove, the meat on the seat beside her, Why this was so very easy? Was it that the man was plainly a victim, with his ineffectual eyes and his artificial teeth, born to make this journey? Yes, perhaps that was it. She was not afraid, because all of this was so perfectly predictable. As she turned the key in the front door and stepped into the house, she thought she heard a noise in the kitchen. Had Rory returned home early, ill perhaps? She called out. There was no reply, the house was empty, almost. From the threshold on, she had the thing planned meticulously. She closed the door. The man in the blue suit stared at his manicured hands and waited for his cue. I get lonely sometimes, she told him as he brushed past him. It was a line she'd come up with in bed the previous night. He only nodded by way of response, the expression on his face a mingling of fear and incredulity. He clearly couldn't quite believe his luck. Do 
Do you want another drink? She asked him. Or shall we go straight upstairs? He only nodded again. Which? I think maybe I've drunk enough already. Upstairs, then. He made an indecisive move in her direction, as though he might have intended a kiss. She wanted no courtship, however. Skirting his touch, she crossed to the bottom of the stairs. I'll lead, she said. Meekly, he followed. At the top of the steps, she glanced round at him and caught him dabbing sweat from his chin with his handkerchief. She waited until he caught up with her and then led him halfway along the landing to the damp room. The door had been left ajar. Come on in, she said. He obeyed. Once inside, it took him a few moments to become accustomed to the gloom and a further time to give voice to his observation. There's no bed. She closed the door and switched on the light. She had hung one of Rory's old jackets on the back of the door. In its pocket, she'd left the knife. He said again, no bed. What's wrong with the floor? She replied, the floor? Take off your jacket, you're warm. I am, he agreed, but did nothing, so she moved across to him and began to slip the knot of his tie. He was trembling, poor lamb, poor bleatless lamb. While she removed the tie, he began to shrug off his jacket. Was Frank watching this, she wondered. Her eyes strayed momentarily to the wall. Yes, she thought, he's there. He sees, he knows. He licks his lips and grows impatient. The lamb spoke. Why don't you, he began, why don't you maybe do the same? Would you like to see me naked, she teased. The words made his eyes gleam. Yes he said thickly. Yes, I'd like that. Very much? Very much. He was unbuttoning his shirt. Maybe you will, she said. He gave her that dwarf smile again. Is it a game? He ventured. If you want it to be, she said, and helped him out of his shirt. His body was pale and waxy, like a fungus. His upper chest was heavy, his belly too. She put her hands to his face. He kissed her fingertips. You're beautiful, he said, spitting the words out as though they'd been vexing him for hours. Am I? You know you are. Lovely. Loveliest woman I ever set eyes on. That's gallant of you, she said, and turned back to the door. Behind her, she heard his belt buckle clink and the sound of cloth skipping over skin as he dropped his trousers. So far, and no farther, she thought. She had no wish to see him babe naked. It was enough to have him like this. She reached into the jacket pocket. Oh dear, the lamb suddenly said. She let the knife lie. What is it? she asked, turning to look at him. If the ring on his finger hadn't already given his status away, she would have known him to be a married man by the underpants he wore baggy and overwashed, an unflattering garment bought by a wife who had long since ceased to think of her husband in sexual terms. I think I need to empty my bladder, he said. Too many whiskeys. She shrugged a small shrug and turned back to the door. Won't be a moment, he said at her back. 
but her hand was in the jacket pocket before the words were out. And as he stepped towards the door, she turned on him, slaughtering knife in hand. His pace was too quick to see the blade until the very last moment, and even then, it was bemusement that crossed his face, not fear. It was a short-lived look. The knife was in him a moment after, slicing his belly with the ease of a blade in overripe cheese. She opened one cut, and then another. As the blood started, she was certain the room flickered, the bricks and mortar trembling to see the spurts that flew from him. She had a breath's length to admire the phenomena, no more, before the lamb let out a wheezing curse, and instead of moving out of the knife's range, as she had anticipated, took a step toward her and knocked the weapon from her hand. It spun across the floorboards and collided with the skirting. Then he was upon her. He put his hand into her hair and took a fistful. It seemed his intention was not violence, but escape, for he relinquished his hold as soon as she'd pulled away from the door. She fell against the wall, looking up to see him wrestling with the door handle, his free hand clamped to his cuts. She was quick now, crossed to where the knife lay, up and back toward him in one fluid motion. He had got the door open by inches, but not far enough. She brought the knife down in the middle of his pockmarked back. He yelled and released the door handle. She was already drawing the knife out and plunging it into him a second time, and now a third, and a fourth. Indeed, she lost count of the wounds she made, her attack lent venom by his refusal to lie down and die. He stumbled around the room, grieving and complaining, blood following blood onto his buttocks and his legs. Finally, after an age of this farcical stuff, he keeled over and hit the floor. This time, she was certain her senses did not deceive her. The room, or the spirit in it, responded with soft sighs of anticipation. Somewhere, a bell was ringing. Almost as an afterthought, she registered that the lamb had stopped breathing. She crossed the blood-spangled floor to where he lay and said, Enough? Then she went to wash her face. As she moved down the landing, she heard the room groan. There was no other word for it. She stopped in her tracks, almost tempted to go back. But the blood was drying on her hands, and its stickiness revolted her. In the bathroom, she stripped off her flower-patterned blouse and rinsed first her hands, then her speckled arms, and finally her neck. The dowsing both chilled and braced her. It felt good. That done, she washed the knife and rinsed the sink and returned along the landing without bothering to dry herself or to dress. She had no need for either. The room was like a furnace as the dead man's energies pulsed from his body. They didn't get far. Already the blood on the floor was crawling away toward the wall where Frank was, the beads seeming to boil and evaporate as they came within range of the skirting boards. She watched, entranced, but there was more. Something was happening to the corpse. It was being drained of every nutritious element, the body convulsing as its innards were sucked out, gases moaning in its bowels and throat, the skin desiccating in front of her startled eyes. At one point, the plastic teeth dropped back into the gullet, the gums withered around them. And in mere moments, it was done. Anything the body might have usefully offered by way of nourishment had been taken. The husk that remained would not have sustained a family of fleas. She was impressed. Suddenly, the bulb began to flicker. 
She looked to the wall, expecting it to tremble and spit her lover from hiding. But no, the bulb went out. There was only the dim light that crept through the age-beaten blind. Where are you? She said. The walls remained mute. Where are you? Still, nothing. The room was cooling. Her breasts had grown goose flesh. She peered down at the luminous watch on the lamb's shriveled arm. It ticked away, indifferent to the apocalypse that had overtaken its owner. It read 441. Rory would be back any time after 515, depending on how dense the traffic was. She had work to do before then. Bundling up the blue suit and the rest of his clothes, she put them in several plastic bags and then went in search of a larger bag for the remains. She had expected Frank to be here to help her with this labor, but as he hadn't shown, she had no choice but to do it herself. When she came back to the room, the deterioration of the lamb was still continuing, though now much slowed. Perhaps Frank was still finding nutriments to squeeze from the corpse, but she doubted. More likely, the pauperized body, sucked clean of marrow and every vital fluid, was no longer strong enough to support itself. When she had parceled it up in the bag, it was the weight of a small child, no more. Sealing the bag up, she was about to take it down to the car when she heard the front door open. The sound undammed all the panic she'd so assiduously kept from herself. She began to shake. Tears pricked her sinuses. Not now, she told herself, but the feeling simply would not be suppressed any longer. In the hallway below, Rory said, Sweetheart? Sweetheart. She could have laughed, but for the terror. She was here if he wanted to find her, his sweetheart, his honey bun, with her breasts new washed and a dead man in her arms. Where are you? She hesitated before replying, not certain that her larynx was the equal of the deception. He called a third time, his voice changing timbre as he walked into the kitchen. It would take him a moment only to discover that she wasn't at the cooker stirring sauce. Then he would come back and head up the stairs. She had 10 seconds, 15 at most. Attempting to keep her tread as light as possible for fear he heard her movements overhead, she carried the bundle to the spare room at the end of the landing. Too small to be used as a bedroom, except perhaps for a child, they had used it as a dump. Half-emptied tea chest, pieces of furniture that had not found a place for, all manner of rubbish. Here, she laid the body to rest a while, behind an upended armchair. Then she locked the door behind her, just as Rory called from the bottom of the stairs. He was coming up. Julia, Julia, sweetheart, are you there? She slipped into the bathroom and consulted the mirror. It showed her a flushed portrait. She picked up the blouse she'd left hanging over the side of the bath and put it on. It smelled stale and there was undoubtedly blood spattered between the flowers, but she had nothing else to wear. He was coming along the landing. She heard his elephantine tread. Julia? This time she answered, making no attempt to disguise the tremulous quality of her voice. The mirror had confirmed what she feared, that there was no way she could pass herself off as undistressed. She was obliged to make a virtue of the liability. Are you all right? He asked her. He was outside the door. No, she said. I'm feeling sick. Oh, darling... I'll be fine in a minute. She tried the handle, but she'd bolted the door. 
Can you leave me alone for a little while? Do you want a doctor? No, she told him. No, really. But I wouldn't mind a brandy. Brandy. I'll be down in two ticks. Whatever Madam wants, he quipped. She counted his steps as he trudged to the stairs, then descended. Once she'd calculated that he was out of earshot, she slid back the bolt and stepped onto the landing. The late afternoon light was failing quickly. The landing was a murky tunnel. Downstairs, she heard the clink of glass on glass. She moved as quickly as she dared to Frank's room. There was no sound from the gloomed interior. The walls no longer trembled, nor did distant bells toll. She pushed the door open. It creaked slightly. She had not entirely tidied up after her labors. There was dust on the floor, human dust and fragments of dried flesh. She went down on her haunches and collected them up diligently. Rory had been right. What a perfect housefrau she made. As she stood up again, something shifted in the ever denser shadows of the room. She looked in the direction of the movement, but before her eyes could make sense of the form in the corner, a voice said, don't look at me. It was a tired voice, the voice of somebody used up by events, but it was concrete. The syllables were carried on the same air that she breathed. Frank, she said. Yes, came the broken voice. It's me. From downstairs, Rory called up to her. Are you feeling better? She went to the door. Much better, she responded. At her back, the hidden thing said, Don't let him near me. The words coming fierce. It's all right, she whispered to him. Then to Rory, I'll be with you in a minute. Put on some music, uh, something soothing. Rory replied that he would and retired to the lounge. I'm only half made, Frank's voice said. I don't want you to see me. Don't want anybody to see me. Not like this. The words were halting once more and wretched. I have to have more blood, Julia. More? And soon. How much more? She asked the shadows. This time she caught a better glimpse of what lay in wait there. No wonder he wanted no one to look. Just more, he said. Though the volume was barely above a whisper, there was an urgency in the voice that made her afraid. I, I have to go, she said hearing music from below. This time, the darkness made no reply. At the door, she turned back. I'm glad you came, she said. As she closed the door, she heard a sound not unlike laughter behind her, nor unlike sobs. <laughs>